Hey guys, welcome to the Eight Limbs Podcast. I have a special episode for you today. I'm joined by Sylvie von Douglas Itu, uh, the most prolific foreigner in Thailand. She has a record of 170, 73, and 10. How are you doing today, Sylvie? I'm doing all right. Thank you very much. That's awesome. I wanted to get started uh, by asking you a little bit about your background. So how did you get into Muay Thai and what drove you to, to really pursue the dream and move to Thailand and get started with this, the Muay Thai library that you're doing? Um, that seems like a really linear question and it's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the way that I first got into Muay Thai is I was actually introduced to it um, through my husband who uh, watched a lot of Kung Fu movies. Um, and so I actually first saw it on film uh, and it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. It was just so beautiful. Um, and I didn't grow up doing any kind of martial arts or anything like that. I played soccer as a kid. Um, I was pretty active. I grew up in Colorado. Um, but I, I didn't have any kind of like, uh, you know, contact sports background. Um, but we were living in um, Bear Mountain, which is up by West Point in New York, in a cabin. <laughs> it was like not near anything. So when it was decided that I wanted to actually try Muay Thai and like find where to train Muay Thai, it was really hard. Um, to find a place to learn it and ultimately we ended up in a Thai man who goes by Master K who was about 69 years old when I met him he's in his 80s now Um, but he was teaching people out of his basement in New Jersey and I would drive an hour in each direction to do a little bit of work with Master K a few times a week Um, and then to to make the question you asked linear when it was not linear is it just kind of swallowed my life like it I loved it so much that it was like how do we get more of Master K Um, and so I was going to see him more often and then training myself in the woods and then um, he actually had angioplasty Um, he he had a heart operation and kind of the reality of understanding that he was not um, permanent that nothing's permanent uh, we felt like we really needed to come to Thailand and experience Muay Thai uh, from its motherland, um, and then once you see that, <laughs> you're bitten, and you just, <laughs> we were like, we have to move here, so it was kind of like a snowballing effect of how Muay Thai has kind of taken over my life from when I was first introduced to it, um, but yeah, it's just been like a, a gradual, um, everything about my life becoming about Muay Thai, uh, over the past, I don't know, 12 years or so. Right, and you've had the opportunity to, to train with and document, um, countless legends of the sport. How how was that process of like kind of getting the rapport with those guys, and especially as someone from the West and a woman, was it? How was that process? Was it difficult? Um, there are difficulties in it, but given what it is, it's shockingly not difficult. <laughs> um, in terms of like, uh, if 
if you were looking at it from the outside, how easy do you think it would be to like go take a private session from, um, you know, Mike Tyson and become his friend and have him yeah. start texting you in the morning? Like, <laughs> that seems pretty insane. But uh, in in Thailand, that um, kind of shockingly has um, become my reality, where I have like multiple legends um, texting me throughout the night and like calling me and asking me questions and to translate something for them. Um, or me bothering them late into the night, asking them about their records or, you know, how much they weighed in at when they were fighting. Yeah. You guys like Edelnoy and Gensak and Karaha invested in your it's fight. Crazy. It's amazing. It's like having a bat phone in my house. <laughs> like me. Um, but the way that started um, was actually weirdly similar to my training with Master K in that um, I'm the most documented fighter probably in history because I've been documenting myself from the beginning. And it was not really a like, um, you know, project of ego in like, I really wanted to show how amazing I was, but rather I knew that a lot of people would never have the kind of experience that I was having of being able to train with someone like Master K. Mm. Um, and he packed so much into each session. I could not from the, the level I was at and the understanding I had, I could not digest it. So I was, I was filming it for myself to be able to understand it better and then um, publishing it for everyone else because people don't get that experience. And it's kind of that same um, ethic, I think, that led me to the Preserve the Legacy project of training with legends of Muay Thai, um, not only to preserve the technique of Muay Thai, which is changing so fast in Thailand, like it's disappearing really, really fast from what it was in the Golden Age and these, these men who have that um, technique and knowledge in their bodies um, but also the men themselves like I could I could talk to you forever about what diesel noise like um, but you really have to see it <laughs> it's hard to describe and then someone like Samson Isan who you watch his fights and he's just this terminator like just this yeah. endless terminator he's so scary um, when you meet him in person he's he's in his 40s but he acts like he's 12 like he's <laughs> We were at a, a cremation ceremony for Siri Moncon, who's from the um, Silver Age. And uh, Samson was just kind of like running around, like how you know your nephew would be like running around a funeral <laughs> or something. It's, he's very sweet. So it's um, I don't want to have to describe that in some book somewhere. I want people to actually be able to see that uh, in, in the way that he actually teaches and shows his techniques. And he's a taxi driver. He's not actually a trainer. So... Um, you know, preserving his technique is actually a um, very unique endeavor because he's not in a gym somewhere. Right. And it's so important with Muay Thai, like with um, with these other sports, boxing, kickboxing and everything, there's so much access to, to the legends of the sport. They're doing a lot of interviews in English. There's so much film of them. But Muay Thai is severely underdocumented. And it's I feel like it's a very important, almost ethnographic project that you're doing. Uh, where there's nowhere else you can see this. Yeah, I think very early on, uh, Diesel Noy was one of the first uh, legends that we put in the Muay Thai library. Um, and I remember someone from maybe Australia, like someone who'd known about him for a really, really long time because their teacher um, had been talking about him. There's not a lot of footage of Diesel Noy yeah. uh, from, from his fighting. There's just not in the world very much footage of Diesel Noy, but everyone has this, like, it, he's almost like the um, Sasquatch of Muay Thai <laughs> in the way that people talk about him. Like, they, they saw him this one time or they used to read about him in the newspaper or something, 
And this person, after they saw uh, one of the early Muay Thai library sessions with him, uh, were talking about how incredible it was that they could see him now, like showing his technique now as a person rather than just some like highlight reel kind of thing. And um, as much as there's, you know, interviews and, and more documentation in English of like Western boxing, I would love to see some like, you know, in the gym Frazier oh, yeah. <laughs> showing Absolutely. somebody something. There's a video um, that my husband just cut together of um, Duran showing like inside inside punching, like very, very close range boxing, which doesn't exist in Western boxing anymore now. Yeah. And it's, it's informal. Like it's just in a gym. He's just showing somebody and it's like, God, that's cool. Like, why is there not tons of that on YouTube? Like that's yeah. so cool. Yeah. Um, you've spoken a lot about the differences between like the Western training style and the Thai training style, especially with pad work. I've always found that in a lot of the MMA and kickboxing gyms that have been around in the West, that the pad work is very rote. And uh, they don't really, they're not doing like the play, the kind of light sparring thing that ties are. And a lot of kickboxers and MMA fighters and Western strikers kind of have trouble st with stuff like navigating the ring with rhythm and that because they, they aren't really developing it as much. So I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on the, the way that ties do pad work. Because I've always just found that it seems a lot more natural and resembling of what you'd actually do in fights. I think uh, even that is is changing now fast. Um, gyms are becoming more Western friendly um, because that's one way to uh, pay bills if you right. you know aren't earning entirely off of your fighters and things like that. So I think that the um, I'll call it an influence. I, I don't want it to sound like we're like ruining Muay Thai or something, <laughs> but the, the influence of Western pedagogy and the way that we like to learn and the way that we like to do things um, is definitely influencing the way uh, the more traditional pedagogy of Muay Thai is being carried out now. Um, I, I think that the, um, I want my trainer to show me a technique or show me a combination. Westerners love combinations. Um, show me the combination, make it look good when I'm on the pads, make the sounds that are really loud, like I'm really good at it so that I can like look like I really did it well. And then like, I'm, I'm happy if I can do that in the ring. Mm. There's in traditional Thai training pedagogy, there's way more uh, flexibility for giving someone a technique or giving someone something that they're supposed to be doing and then allowing their natural version of that to become stronger as it, as it carries out. Um, so instead of like memorizing phrases in a language um, that you can ask where the bathroom is really casually or something, <laughs> um, you actually, it's, it's more of an immersion the way that um, I think the Thai pedagogy traditionally has been set up um, is, is way less uh, memorizing combinations and, uh, learning straight from the teacher that this is the way you're supposed to do something and instead it's it's immersive in the sense of like you need to start solving these problems for yourself thinking for yourself like moving uh, in an overall like conversation um, kind of experience rather than like uh, learn and repeat right um, and I think that you can see that a lot uh, in the playfulness um, between, you'll see a little bit of playfulness between Padman and student if they've been around each other for a really long time, but you really see it in sparring. Um, and Cha Chai Sasakun, uh, who was WBC champion, but he also was an incredible Muay Thai fighter, 
um, prior to going into Western boxing, um, he talks about how important sparring was for his generation, which is which is the golden age of Muay Thai. Um, and he said, we didn't even have shin guards, so you had to have total control. Like, you had to be able to feel everything um, to be able to uh, play like that. And, and he said that the greatest fighters uh, were the fighters who spent all their time sparring, that that's really how you learn the feeling for everything. Mm. If you want to get a sense of what she's talking about, look up Cyan Chai and Sing Dom sparring. <laughs> Looks like they're having a ton of fun. There's um there's a couple ones where uh, Sing Dom's doing pad work and then Cyan Chai like, sneaks up and kicks his leg out from under him. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, definitely you have a... that, see that playfulness there, uh, yeah. even in Sansai's fights because of the um, because of the kinds of fights he's allowed to fight in now. So you, you see yeah. that playfulness come out really easily. Yeah, for the last couple of years, he's just been dunking on Westerners, just having a lot of fun in there. It's <laughs> awesome to watch. So um, you have a, a very aggressive style, and it's interesting because a lot of Westerners are kind of pigeonholed into that like. Uh, the stereotype is that they don't know how to score in Muay Thai. They come forward, throw a lot of hands, but you're aggressive in a really Thai way. Uh, so how did you kind of develop that Muay Cao style? Is it something that seemed intuitive and came naturally at the beginning? Or was it like your trainers were like, okay, you're you're going to be this? No, actually, my trainers always wanted me to be Fumer because I'm small. Um, so being a small fighter uh, and being like very evasive and, and kind of um, tricky is what my body type and maybe being a woman is what my trainers really wanted me to do. And I was not that, um, I think it was very frustrating for them. And I, I tried, I honestly, um, tried to, to be molded, uh, in the things that they thought that I should do, but it just never felt right. I, I just wasn't good at it. Like it didn't, it felt like I was always trying to do something instead of that. I was actually, um, fighting. Uh, and then I, I had a natural inclination I think towards knees and the clinch um, way before I was any good at it. <laughs> and it, it was probably a good year into being in Thailand full time, uh, fighting all the time. I was fighting like every 11 days or something um, that I even realized that there are styles of Muay Thai. Like I just thought there was Muay Thai. Right. Um, and so when I started to recognize and see and learn about different styles and I actually started to understand Muay Cao and, and that, my tendencies were a thing instead of an accident. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I picked it. It's not like you, uh, you know, have the characters rotating in a video game and you're like, I want the one with the yeah. axe. Like it's, um, you have tendencies and then you can kind of lean towards them. And I think that's what happened with me is that being able to see fighters who had that style, um, allowed me to kind of increase my vocabulary and my influences um, and as I got better at it, then my trainers became more like, oh, shit, yeah, those knees are pretty good. Like, <laughs> let's go in that direction instead of trying to make you um, so evasive. Um, but uh, I think that it's it's an endless work in progress. Like, I, I don't feel that I'm, like, now established Muay Cao. I know everything in Muay Cao. Like, it's, there are so many styles even within one given style. Right. Um, and one of the more beautiful things about Muay Thai is that uh, you can never – ever reach the end of it like there's just such depth to um, every aspect of it um, I do think that I'm still a little bit like um, aggressive westerner <laughs> um, but uh, not in a like I don't understand what's going on I'm just barreling forward um, yeah. I do understand scoring so um, in in a, a long process of trial and error I have learned how my style 
uh, scores or doesn't score and how the opposites of my style um, score or don't score against me. Um, one of the more amazing things about uh, fighting in Thailand and, and why it's so difficult um, is that there are just so many ways to lose. Like <laughs> ways that you, you didn't know you could lose because you thought it was like a, you know, adding on a calculator how many times you hit someone and it's not yeah. like that. It's a performance. So um, that's that's been a long process of learning to understand that. And there have been some losses that you're like, um, that sucks. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not... I'm not right. Like it's not like oh, at least I don't know what's I going on now. You're like, no, I see, I see how that happened. Yeah. So who would you say have been your biggest influence as a fighter? You've gotten the chance to train with tons of legends, and I know that you've gravitated towards some more than others. Like I think Dieselnoy and Karahat, you've done a lot of work with. So who would you say has had the biggest influence on your style? Oh, that would be hard to say. It's. It's funny that that I love Karahat and Diesel Noise so much because they are nothing like each Complete other. Complete opposites, yeah. <laughs> you can't be both, um, but I'm somehow Frankensteined into both. Um, uh, I think that that um, what I like about both of them is kind of an ethic. Like Karahat is not Moy Cow; he's not a knee fighter. Um, although he was when he was young, he said that when he got to Bangkok, he was too lazy to be a Moy Cow fighter. He didn't <laughs> want to train that hard, so I he became that. like the best the best female fighter ever. Um, I think that, that what I like about his style, even though he's not Moy Cao, is that his heart is Moy Cao. Like, he really stays uh, in the fight all the time, um, as opposed to someone like Silipatai or um, Samart, who are just incredibly good at, like, slipping out of the way all the time. Um, so I think that, that the, like, heart of Diesel Noy and... Um, he came to my gym for six months. He was coming three days a week. We brought him down as part of this Legends and Residents project to try to bring together, um, you know, legends from the Golden Age to, like, contemporary active Muay Thai, which is why we brought him uh, to my gym. And so I listened to him a lot. Like, I was I was listening to him talking as kind of like a, um, I, I hate to use such a cliche example, but like a Mr. Miyagi. Like, he was just totally <laughs> spitting knowledge all the time. But, like, the way he talked in a term of, like, this is the ethic you should have as a fighter that's so far beyond, like, make sure you bounce your knee to, like, you know, right. do this, whatever. I think that um, I've been imprinted by Diesel Noy in a really strong way because of how much I, I listen to him. Um, so I'd probably put him at number one for uh, who's influenced me the most. But uh, I'm I'm super enamored of um, Karahat's style and weirdly uh with my trainers trying to make me femur for so long and i just hated it he's such a femur fighter and sometimes yeah. when he shows me things i'm like god that feels good like <laughs> i i like that part of it and it it works so um yeah i think i think those two are the strongest for me that's awesome you mentioned um like trying to put golden age fighters with modern fighters is that something that doesn't happen a lot? Like, I don't know how much uh, crossover there's been, how much training modern fighters are doing with Golden Age legends, whether they're like actively coaching. There's there's not a lot, um, unfortunately. Um, some of the the Golden Age legends have gyms. Like, um, uh, Samart has his own gym, although I think he's more active in it now than he was a couple of years ago. Um, someone like uh, Lamnamoon has had a gym for a very long time, and he's very involved in his fighters. Um, and uh, Somrock, like when when he had recently retired, he was bringing people up, so like he's responsible um, for 
many, many fighters out of uh, Jockey Jim, so he had direct influence with a young Sanchai and um, Silipatai and uh, Lord Silla, people like that. Yeah. Um, so there, there is um, examples of legends of the Golden Age who kind of like had influence in gyms, bringing people up, but largely they're kind of like um, Ronin, like samurais <laughs> that are just kind of off with nothing and they don't have a lot of financial stability and they'll kind of hop between gyms and then also the way that gyms in Thailand function. Um, in the West, we like really love our Padman and give them a lot of respect. And here a Padman is just kind of like um, grunt work, like it's, right. it's not super respected work. Um, so it, it, it has a lot of different levels and elements involved in it where you can have like someone who you think is like one of the greatest fighters you've ever met is a Padman in a gym and he's like really low on the ladder in mm-hmm. terms of like how he's treated at the gym. Um, so the the way that um, I think my project in, in Preserve the Legacy and my patron, the way that's influenced people in the West, people have started to see these um, fighters, these ex-fighters, not only in their fights are becoming more visible because now they know other names other than Bukow and Sanchai who to look for, um, but they're also seeing them as trainers now, and so they'll actually come to Thailand and seek them out, like, for um, private lessons and things like this. Um, Yokun Pon is a very good example of that. He um, is, like, people in Thailand don't know where Yokun Pon is, and he's, like, right next door to my gym. He's a referee at a, at a bar <laughs> down the road where kids get experience in, in Patia, so he, like, referees kids and show fights and things. Um, but then he'll take private lessons in the gym, and he's just, he's an extraordinary teacher. He's so mm-hmm. smart, and his style is so incredible, and people are now coming to Thailand looking for him, and he laughs and tells me all the time, he's like, I always know people came from you, because they're like, you're the elbow hunter. <laughs> like, nobody calls me the elbow hunter, but they're like, oh my god, you're the elbow hunter. Like, yeah, they should know who you are. <laughs> That's amazing. There's always this... um this problem in fighting with um like what they do after fighting and yeah. there's always somebody at the top making money off the fighters and there's a lot of exploitation and that seems even more pronounced in muay thai than a lot of other combat sports which is a shame but it's amazing that you're bringing attention to them hearing about yod kupon getting getting uh private lessons in and people recognizing him from your videos is amazing um i want to come back to something you were saying earlier about there being so many ways to lose in Muay Thai. Mm. It's really interesting that Muay Thai is maybe the only combat sport I can think of with a very clear and deliberate aesthetic preference. You get these mm. in stuff like MMA, but it's it seems like not deliberate at all, where it's just a function of judges not really knowing what they're doing, so they reward aggression. But Muay Thai has like a very deliberate aesthetic of what they want from fighters favoring balance and control and it's seen through like maintaining composure on the outside and um you talked about how moving backwards is kind of the sign that that you're winning in muay thai that you have control of the fight and you're like okay come on get me it's your turn to score a point and it seems like fighters who rely on pressure and pushing a pace are almost accepting an aesthetic disadvantage in order to implement their game from talking to Kevin, it seems like certain styles are kind of looked down upon and marginalized in Thailand for not fitting this ideal aesthetic. Uh, mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about that? And also, as a, an aggressive Moy Cow, how you, how you see that? Um, do you feel like going into your fights, 
you're kind of accepting a scoring disadvantage in order to implement your game. Uh, do you, how do you feel about that kind of aesthetic preference? It's changing already, <laughs> mm. uh, which is, um, you know, you see a lot more of these three round shows that are for international audiences. So it's like um, Max Muay Thai and yeah. uh, MX and Thai Fight. Um, a lot of these fights uh, are kind of taking out the narrative structure that Muay Thai scoring traditionally has and that makes uh, Muay Thai so interesting uh, is this, this five round narrative structure. Um, as a Muay Cow fighter and as an aggressive fighter, when I go into a fight, because I understand the narrative structure of it, I understand that even as the aggressive fighter, um, I basically have to write checks early that I'm going to cash in later. And if I'm not able to do that, all that good work I put in in the beginning actually works against me if I'm not able to kind of cash in at the end. Um, so you have to think about the entire fight. Like you have to think about your, your progression all the way through. Um, I think this is something that's very hard for Westerners because we just think of it as round by round and that it's like whoever hits the most or something. Yeah. And so if you have two really strong rounds, you're like, well, those two are in the bank. And so if I start to fade later in the fight, I've I've already made good on those early rounds. And that's not the way it works um, in, in Thailand, mostly. Um, I think that one of the more beautiful things about how the aesthetic of Muay Thai in showing composure and showing balance, um, once you get an eye for it, like once you've, you've tasted it as a viewer, it becomes really hard. It changes your eyes in being able to watch other kinds of fighting. Mm -hmm. So I used to actually watch a lot of MMA. Um, on Kevin and My Honeymoon, we were watching the WEC, uh, and oh, yeah. then we were watching a lot of um, UFC because some of our favorite fighters got brought over there and things like this, and I can't watch... MMA anymore because they're like 10 feet away from each other all the time. Yeah. It's like the most um, social distancing sport ever. Uh, <laughs> and they're like they're they're always hitting and then running away from each other. There's no balance. Like they're off balance before the shot, after the shot. Maybe it lands, maybe it doesn't. Like um, I think because I personally put the same aesthetic that I've become accustomed to and I'm looking for from Muay Thai uh, onto other sports, I'm, I'm like, I don't know what I'm looking at. Like, I just can't, I can't see it the same way. Um, but when you look for those little details and you start talking about who's the greatest fighter ever, or like, why is this, why is this fight so interesting or something? And you see those little elements when you see a fighter who, um, is tall and long and kind of, uh, evasive, like Samart, Samart is so good at just like, all the legends talk about how he had such good eyes. What they mean by that is that his timing was really good. He could see everything. He saw when he had an opening. He saw when a shot was coming at him. And so he kind of looks all the time as though he's floating above the action. Like he's mm -hmm. just outside of it and kind of like working around it. And you put him against a powerful fighter and he just looks completely like someone is stumbling after him. Yeah. But then you can take like a super powerful fighter and put them against another fighter like that. And it looks like just walking through everything. It's, it's like if, when you see King Kong with like bullets flying off of or something, <laughs> you're like, how is he doing that? Is that within the aesthetic of Muay Thai and within those styles, and because you're looking at things like balance, like being unaffected, uh, like strategy and being able to see things and time things, um, it, it looks like... Uh, It looks like a magic trick or something. It looks like yeah. you're actually looking 
at Marvel characters with superpowers that are like using their superpowers <laughs> against each other. Um, and I think that because of that aesthetic and because of the way that people used to train and be able to carry out that aesthetic so well in the golden age, um, you really had uh, kind of larger than life fighters who had unique personalities. In Thai, you call it sine. It means like um, charm, being like charismatic. Um, their particular personality really came out in their fights in a way that I, I don't see in contemporary Muay Thai. And I follow the same fighters. Like I, right. I know how um, Sangmanini, who's an amazing fighter, I know how he fights. Like he's going to fight like this against anybody, but it doesn't have the same like that's Superman. Like Superman's yeah. going to do Superman things. I can see what you're saying there. Somebody. <laughs> like watching Samart fight, it's it looks like he's, he's moving so much, but there's just a beautiful economy of movement and balance that's just almost unrivaled in anything I've seen. Like you they watch him and he other so much and he looks like he's at a bus stop. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, Oh, is it raining? Like, I don't you guys like Samrak. Um, yeah. I can definitely see what you're saying about just having very visible personalities in their fights that don't really come out anymore. Yeah. Um, you were talking about like the flow of the fight and how, how it's not like you're banking early rounds with the expectation that those are going to matter a lot in scoring. Mm -hmm. uh, in modern Muay Thai, it seems like, uh, the fighters will do a lot less in the first two rounds. Like it's almost become accepted that not that so much that those are like feeler rounds to kind of get started and like figure out your reads and everything, but almost like rounds to waste because they know they're not going to do anything there. Whereas in the golden age, it seemed like they got started a lot earlier. They wouldn't fight all out from the first round, but you watch like guys like Virapal, Samson, Isan, even the the less pressure oriented guys, they're still like actually fighting in the first couple of rounds. Um, so I've heard that a lot of that has to do with gambling, but I haven't really been clear exactly on how gambling influences the sport. So why, why is that? Has there been, what developments have kind of changed that and made the first couple of rounds kind of throwaways more so than they used to be? I probably couldn't tell you with like 100% authority how that worked. Um, it's also hard to know what the first two rounds really looked like because most of what we have from the together. are these one song chai fights, which they put one and two together. <laughs> so yeah. it's like highlights of one and two. Um, so I'm not I'm not sure uh, what those looked like most of the time during the golden age or in like less than uh, you know champion versus champion fights. Um, there's definitely a slow start now um and that's because the first two rounds aren't really scored so the first two rounds are generally 10 10 unless something super spectacular happens in them or if you kind of have to reference them later um so fighters are not going to go all out during those rounds one because they're saving themselves for the scoring rounds um but two because gambling is such an important part of muay thai it actually kind of drives me crazy when people <laughs> uh parrot something that they heard from either sanchai or samart that gambling has ruined Muay Thai. There is no Muay Thai without gambling. It doesn't, right. it doesn't exist. It's like, like water ruined the ocean. It makes no sense. Um, but the, the effect of gambling in that sense is that they're saving themselves for the scoring rounds because they're really going to have to go harder. So they don't want to tire themselves out, but they also don't necessarily want to show all of their cards. So you'll see fighters kind of sandbag in rounds one and two. And so it looks like they're just like not even doing anything, but they actually might be 
sandbagging and looking like I'm not a really powerful fighter or I don't have a lot of gears or I don't have a lot of weapons that then they're going to bring out in the scoring rounds and either surprise their opponent, which would be great, or they can also change the odds of the fight when people have bought in for cheap. Right. So uh, people, people, you know, bought in starting at round three and then uh, you were really cheap because you looked like you have no idea what you're doing, and then all of a sudden you're incredible in round four, um, your people who uh, kind of knew what to look for can make a lot of money on the odds in that way. So the the gameplay element um, of how Muay Thai is performed comes from gambling, um, and that's that's why you might see a little bit of that. And then in the Golden Age, there wasn't as much of this like dancing off in round five. You see a lot of that yeah. now. Um, and the reason you see that now You'll hear um, in English a lot of people explain that it's that people fight so much that they don't want to like damage themselves unnecessarily because they have other fights coming up. That's true if you're looking at a fight that like isn't super important kind of thing. Like if it's a championship fight, you're not going to see something like that. Right. Um, but it's also that <clears throat> if you have a huge lead, money has already been exchanged. They're already eating peanuts <laughs> in the stands. So like no, you don't have to like keep going crazy. Um, unless it's going to be like, uh, you know, for your honor or for a rematch or something like that. So um, there's there's a lot more going on outside of the actual fight. Like my favorite stadium is Raja Domnern. If you go watch a fight at Raja Domnern and you're sitting ringside between rounds, you'll hear the din of the gamblers between rounds. They're screaming and like <laughs> pounding on the on the boards to get the attention of the people in the ring. They'll have, like, a gold chain that they'll show, but everyone knows that that size gold chain is, like, 10,000 baht, 20,000 baht, and so they're basically giving an injection to that fighter, and they're showing the chain, being like, this is how much I'll give you if you, you know, turn it up <laughs> in the ground or whatever the thing is. The fighters are looking at the gamblers, the corners are looking at the gamblers, the referees are looking at the gamblers. Like, everyone wants to know how is this story being read, and it's happening out like this, um, which... I think a lot of Westerners, when we go uh, watch a fight, where we're like, this is happening between two people and there's maybe a third guy in there. Like, there's, <laughs> there are so many people involved in, in the Muay Thai fight. It really is the entire arena um, during each fight, which I find absolutely amazing. I think, I think it's one of the coolest things about Muay Thai. Yeah, there's so much involvement in the crowd that you don't see in a lot of other arts. It's oh, gambling. man, they get so into it. Like, yeah. how can you not be excited when, like, everyone is... Every time it? someone throws a knee, even if they're, like, not really landing it, they're shouting. It's amazing. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> yeah. Is gambling something you keep in mind in your fights? I don't fight in the kinds of stadia that have really big gambling involved in them. Um, I, I don't really think about it because... Um, one, I don't understand it. <laughs> like, I, can't, I can't do a whole lot. When I when I first started, um, my first two years when I was up in Chiang Mai, I had a, um, he wasn't my trainer, but he was a trainer at the gym. His name is Nook. He's one of the coolest, like, characters of my Muay Thai career. He's so crazy. Um, but he would get really excited. He's a, he's a hardcore gambler, even though he gambles very little amounts of money. But he's, like, at the horse races every Saturday kind of thing. But when I was getting ready to go fight, he would let me know that he was going to bet on me. And it made me so nervous. Like, I I underperformed all the time. Like, knowing great, that thanks for the pressure. I cared about, <laughs> totally. Knowing that people I cared about were putting money on me. Now I'm like, that's a good bet. Like, now I'm totally into it. <laughs> but um, 
I, I don't think about gambling in terms of like my own performance or what I'm going to do one. Cause I don't gamble and two, cause I don't understand it, but gamblers like me because I'm small and I can beat people who are bigger. So they can take really long odds on me and make money. So they were like, I like this horse. And so uh. I kind of, um, I gained in popularity among gamblers because of the way that I fight. Uh, now people know who I am, so people won't bet against me. So I don't think gamblers love me that much anymore. Um, but for a while there, I was like, I was very loved for my ability to um, kind of beat the odds, I think. That's awesome. Have you ever gotten offered like incentives, like turn it up this round and I'll, I'll kick you over some money? Uh, I don't remember ever being told directly that I had an injection during a fight. Um, my corner men, I think, a few times have, like, really insisted that I do something that I'm not really known for. Like, they're like, punch a lot. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> I'm not a puncher, but that's probably to do with, like, what a bet is. Um, I've been told knockout in this round, um, I think, is probably for gambling. Um, so we both talked a lot about the difference between the golden age and modern Muay Thai about how the, the golden age had a lot more diversity of technique. The, the fighters seemed more well-rounded and particularly, I think the clinch has changed a lot. Uh, like in the golden age, it's focused a lot more around transitions and being open. If you look at what they're doing in the clinch, they will constantly be moving, constantly transitioning to other things and doing damage. Whereas the modern game seems a lot more focused around locking I've, mm. I've heard a lot of fighters like Cyan Chai and I think Samart say that there's too much clinching in Muay Thai. And I'm not entirely sure if I buy that because a, a lot of the guys you hear that from are Famuse, of course, who probably never like clinching much anyway. <laughs> and some of it seems to be to deal with like how quickly they break up the clinch now. I've heard you complain about that before. And in especially in Bangkok stadiums, Roger Damner and Lumpini, it seems like a lot of the stalling is because of that, where they're getting in the clinch and the ref is going to break it up very soon so they can feel free to, to grab on and hold and stall. Um, I'd like to get your thoughts on that, about how clinching has changed and why that is. Um, I think, uh, again, I can't be fully authoritative on this. It's just my, my views on how um, I've seen changes. And then from what the legends who I've talked to who are clinchers have <laughs> talked about. Um, so the things that I've heard uh, as huge and very persistent complaints from um, Golden Age fighters about what's different about Muay Thai now um, is that gamblers really like power. So they believe the fighter... I'm translating from Thai. They say believe. It means they, like, will put money on this person. So when I say they believe this fighter, I mean they're putting money on the fighter who um, is demonstrating a lot of power. So gamblers love power. They love the, like, super hard throw to the ground. Um, if you look at the Golden Age, there was... Nam Kabuan is a good example of this. Nam Kabuan had amazing body locks. So he would lock the body, and he would actually do, like, small lifts and throws. Um... Olay was actually really good at this as well. Uh, Wong Chinoy is another guy that was, stands out. Oh, and he was small too. Yeah. <laughs> and ripping people. Um, yeah, so there was that in the golden age, but it it wasn't as much a, like, let me do ten power moves. It was, like, two power moves within a fight, and they were, like, kind of incredible. Yeah. 
Nowadays, if you try to do a power move and fail, like if you try to knock your opponent over or throw them to the ground and you fail and you kind of break your posture, you're punished for it by the score and you're punished for it by the gamblers. Whereas before it was like that didn't work um, in the golden age and it wasn't that big a deal. So nowadays with gamblers liking power so much, that's why you see a lot of locking. That's why you see a lot of tripping. That's why you see a lot of um, kind of short exchange clinching um, that back in the golden age when referees would let the clinch go. Oh, when you see two clinch fighters, if you watch uh, Samson and Hassan versus Pepsi, they fought three times. It's like watching, it's like watching snakes when they're just like yeah. going around each other, except not, not ridiculous. Like it's, it's like they, they couldn't lock each other if they tried um, because they're just so, adept like both of them are so good if you watch uh long swan versus chumwa pet both of them are very very strong clinchers fight with lambda moon too oh my god and then uh sang tianoi was enormous versus chumwa pet when the two of them fought there was so much weight between them and sang tianoi normally he's a very tall fighter he's able to do these really long moves he could not get chumwa pet off of him he was doing these incredible turns and chumwa pet was just like a squirrel caught to his chest like kind of flipping around with him and then doing these other things so you see much less of that now one because the referee doesn't let the clinch develop the way that they used to and two people aren't as good of clinchers as they used to be so they actually do just lock and hang in there um i recently posted on my techniques page um, a beautiful fight, actually, between uh, Pet Bunshu and uh, Yodwicha yeah. from, I don't know, maybe five years ago or something. And they were both top clinch fighters of their time. And if you look at that compared to one of the, like, Golden Age clinch fights, it's like people singing Mary Had a Little Lamb and then, like, a Led Zeppelin song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not the same thing, but it's cool that, like, there are still... You know, it's its own thing. It's just not. It's just not the same thing. Yeah. Um. So I think that because, uh, judging has changed. Like what's rewarded has changed, both in striking and in clinching. Um, they've outlawed some things that you used to be able to do, like plowing. You can't do anymore. And they've made things legal now that you didn't used to be able to do. There are trips that you're allowed to do now that you weren't allowed to do in the golden age. And Nam Kabuan has outright said, if you were allowed to trip me back in the day like that, I wouldn't have been able to clinch anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of so trips are those? I've never really uh, been like clear ankles. on exactly what's legal for like, like tripping and clinching in Muay Thai. Oh, okay. You weren't. You didn't used to be able to do ankle sweeps in the in the clinch. And Nam Kabuan said that when you come up to knee from that range, if people could kick your ankle out, he would never be able to knee. Yeah. So if you if you're afraid of being tripped, you're not going to knee. You become really stagnant. And so you just lock. Um, so it, things get shaped by um, by the way things are scored. And then also there's just the um, natural diluting of techniques. So it, my trainer at my gym, uh, Petron Rung, he has active fighters uh, that he's brought up since kids. They're fighters at Lumpany and Rajadamnern. He has to train them for how things are scored now. He can't be like, well, back in my day, you could lock the body and do blah, 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 because you're not scoring back in the day. You're scoring now. So he doesn't want his fighters to lose fights for, uh, you know, moral reasons, because, damn it, I'm going to do these amazing techniques. Like, you want your fighters to have the best shot um, to have winning careers and not lose money for gamblers who 
say horrible things to you and shout at you when you're <laughs> leaving the ring if you've done something stupid. So, um, you know, it's it, if things change, people are going to change with it. It's just kind right. of a natural thing for a living art. Yeah, it definitely seems like there's a much lower level of clinching talent. Uh, like in the golden age, everyone is so well, well-rounded. Even the the guys who try to avoid clinching People are so good Clint there. People hated Clint for awesome at clinch. <laughs> yeah. like, like watching a Gensack fight Lamna Moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like totally. being super competitive with there and counter clinching consistently the whole fight. And now guys like Sai and Chai, uh, the outside fighters, the guys who, unless you're a dedicated Muay Cow, it seems like they they don't really make much of the clinch and they're they're more focused on trying to avoid it entirely. Yeah, I think that there's a there's a hidden element to Sanchai because he's so visible in the West. Um, everyone knows Sanchai. Everyone loves Sanchai. Uh, most people misunderstand <laughs> Sanchai. Um, but if you look at when he was a stadium fighter, you know, like ten years ago when he was actually an incredible, uh, like competitive contender um, in the stadia of Bangkok, he was fighting up. Like, he still fights people bigger than him, but he fights people who have, like, 20 fights. Like, yeah. what fucking risk is there in what he's doing? But when he was fighting, uh, you know, like, Pepun Chu, or he was fighting um, Tanon Chai or Yodwicha, uh, he was giving up significant weight to these people. Right. And even though he's incredibly skilled, when someone comes to grab you and they have weight on you, they're going to snuff you. Like, they're going to control you. So his his ability to do what he wanted to do was absolutely shaped by fighting people bigger than him. Um, in the golden age, you had someone like Chmuk Pet who fought people bigger than him all the time and made it look like he was <laughs> controlling them. It was crazy. But that's, that's like, he's, he's a superhuman. Like it's yeah, a, he's like one of the greatest, well, Sai Chai is too, but. Yeah, so you can see how he got frustrated. You can see how San Chai was like, I can't fight the way I want to fight because in order to get people to gamble they had to keep giving him you know bigger and bigger people and that's going to shape what he's able to do uh in his fights like right. i get frustrated by that my opponents that weigh me by 25 pounds there are things i cannot do <laughs> that i want to do like you know yeah, not every another, fight uh, yeah it's another int- interesting thing about muay thai like when it seems like if someone has too much success in their own weight class they'll like push them up mm-hmm. so um with your own fights did you kind of exhaust the options at your own weight or are there not a lot of like competition around your own weight? Why are you so consistently fighting up? I'm a difficult weight to begin with because I walk around at like a hundred pounds. So those are, um, there's not a lot of fighters at that weight who stay at that weight. They, um, get bigger (laughs) and I don't. So, uh, you know, I, I would have an opponent who, um, you know, in a matter of, three years in which I was fighting her, she would put on 10 kilos um, because she's just growing still and I'm not. Um, but it also became uh, that people my size don't want to fight me. They're, they're like, that's mm-hmm. not a fair match. And I, I honestly have to be like, that's actually fair. Like, fair um, it, I should not be fighting someone my size because it. I've been fighting big for a while. Um, when I was in Chiang Mai, my opponents were a little bit bigger and they just, they were getting slightly bigger all the time. And then occasionally I'd have like a jump uh, where they were like, you know, a solid 13 kilos bigger than me or something. And I wasn't ready for it. So I was like, this is ridiculous. I can't do this. But then over the years I did it more and more. And now I'm like, that's kind of normal for me, but I had been fighting bigger for quite a long time. And then they gave me someone, my actual size, uh, who was a Northern champion. So it was, it was presented as the, like, if she beats Sylvie, good for her. Like, this will be really good for her career. 
if she doesn't, nobody's going to falter for it because Sylvie's very hard to fight. So it was kind of a like, you know, not a lot of skin to be lost for her. Yeah. When I was fighting, she's quite a bit taller than me. When I was fighting her, I went to throw her the way that I try to throw most of my opponents in the clinch. And it, was, it was like that scene when Spider-Man's just become Spider-Man and he like rips the door off. <laughs> she's my size. And she just went like, whoop, and just like flew on the ground. And I was like, holy shit. Like, <laughs> I don't think I should be fighting this size anymore. Like, this is not, I can't do this. So it's um it's a, in Thailand there's a there's a interest in making fights interesting to watch rather than like everything on paper matches. I think that there's less of that in um western matchups. Like they they want the the paperwork to look the same. Like It's more about protecting two. like the athlete's career. They have managers who the managers aren't like we're, we want to get you in there with bigger people. They're like, we want to avoid losses and we want the best for for your career development. And the way that's seen in the West is that, uh, especially with the higher level athletes, they're usually very carefully controlled. Like a lot of boxers will avoid bad matchups and Muay Thai seems like the complete opposite of that. I don't think it's, I don't think it's entirely different from that. I think that there's still a lot of, because... Um, you know, handlers or promoters or whomever, they want to keep their stars as stars. And so right. they, they want to make the kind of people can be protected or kind of not given. Especially in uh, the modern you know, game, like, more. Yeah, people are still built. You know, they, they still build people in order to have these names. But uh, for gambling and for, for Thai audiences, they really, really like to see um, matchups that seem like uh, this could really go in an interesting direction. And so you'll see more uh, visually unusual matchups than I think you would you would see in the West. Right, that makes sense. Um, regarding clinching, I've heard you talk about how they, they let it go on for longer in other areas, whereas in Bangkok, they tend to break it up really quickly. Uh, have you found that clinching in, in the other areas where they let it go on, does it kind of resemble the Golden Age a little bit more, or is it still the, the heavy focus on locking that you see in the modern era? The the locking has to do with the skills of the fighters, whereas the breaking up of it has to do with the referees. So those are those are different things okay. that kind of um, sometimes can be a perfect storm together. Um, the if you go into the provinces, like if you go into Asan, oh they let the clinch go. Like it's it's beautiful. It's kind of like golden age. Uh, they just let it go and let it develop. That doesn't necessarily mean that the fighters are good. Yeah. <laughs> But they do let it go, uh, and so they, they learn to work in it, which is really nice. Um, it depends on the show in Bangkok. Like, Raja Domnern and Lumpany will let the clinch go more than, like, uh, you know, these uh, Moy Hardcore and, like, Super Champ. Those get broken really right. fast. Max Moy Thai, they break it after, like, two seconds all the time because they, they want the, like, swimming windmill thing. Max Moy Thai um, seems like more of a, like a Western bastardization. It's, it is, uh, I don't even know if I should say this. It's called entertainment. Like, it's, um, it's actually sanctioned by a, a, pro, a para part of the Muay Thai authority. Um, it's not, like, traditional Muay Thai. Right. Um, but Westerners love it. And I live in Patia, so uh, there will be people who come to Patia and they're like, my goal is to come and fight at Maximum Channel. <laughs> really? That's odd. Interesting. Um, <laughs> very weird. Um, but I, th- I think that um, what they're trying to do with breaking the clinch now is they, they do want to drive the action. 
Like, they don't want it to just stagnate and die. And that's partially the fault of fighters. That's, that's partially the way that fighters train. If you look at the way they trained in the Golden Age, the way that they clinched, I've, I've learned a way watered-down version of what they did, and my version's still pretty hardcore for right now, which is, like, you clinch for an hour and you don't get to stop. If you train like that, you get fighters who just can keep moving. Um, if, if you don't train like that, uh, you get fighters who are trying to, like, lock in order to get broken or to kind of stagnate or, you know, they're just, like, holding on to each other yeah. to, like, get the round to end or something. So you can't entirely blame scoring and you can't entirely blame referees and you can't entirely blame fighters. It's the, it's the everything has, has changed in tandem and it's just moving in this direction towards um, less and less good clinching. Um, I will say on a personal note that in the same way that like they'll just find bigger and bigger and bigger opponents for me, the way that Chamuk Pet was fighting bigger people just all the time in order to like, you know, Sanchai was fighting bigger people in order to just try to find interesting, um, fun matches for people. There is also a thing where if a fighter is really known for something, like uh, Nam Kabuan is very famous for plowing, which you're not allowed to do anymore. Um, he was just unreal, like incredible at the plow. Um, when he he would do it against people who were so much smaller than him, he uh, he plowed Hippie and Karahat, who are like my size. <laughs> Hippie's and tiny. Like out of the ring kind of thing. Um, and so they changed the rules. They're like, you can't do that anymore. Um, they have not officially changed the rules of clinching but the more I'm known like the more recognized I become the more people uh they're like oh Sylvie's fighting we kind of know what we're expecting from her they will break my clinch more and more and more um as a handicap like as as a way to kind of give my opponent um more of a a chance or more of a fight to protect her uh this kind of thing um and that's I can't I don't want to be like, it's so unfair, they're against me, blah, blah, blah. Like, they're trying to make competitive fights. They're trying to make good fights. Um, in order for me to be able to keep fighting, I actually have to lose. <laughs> like, if I won <laughs> all the time, nobody would fight me. So as much as it sucks to lose, and sometimes when I lose, I'm like, that was total shit, it means I'll fight again. Whereas if you have someone like Diesel Noy, who literally nobody can beat, he was stripped of his belt and retired. Like, mm-hmm. that sucks. I don't, I don't want that. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I'm sure that, that there are ways of um, kind of individual shaping that take place uh, fight to fight that isn't even necessarily like the way Muay Thai is going. It's, it's not a monolith. Right. Um, getting into some more technical questions. Uh, one thing that ties have obviously known forever, and I think other arts are kind of starting to discover, is the importance of like how you train and drill your entries into the clinch. One fight mm-hmm. that comes to mind for me is Valentina Shevchenko's fight with Ioana and Jacek in the UFC. Uh, if you look at their the the long extended clinch exchanges, they're kind of they're pretty competitive. Ioana is holding her own. Um, she's doing damage, and Valentina can't easily take her down or get to her positions, but so often Valentina would like duck under a right hand and then come up with a head and arm and then just toss her near a couple times before Ioana could do anything. And she kind of controlled the fight just by perfecting her entries into the clinch and immediately getting to the position she wanted. 
So I was wondering, as someone who works a lot in the clinch to overwhelm opponents, what are your kind of favorite tactics and strategies for getting into the clinch? Um, my opponents are so much bigger than me <laughs> uh, that I I often am dealing with getting past their length. Um, like I'm I'm really just trying to get to my range. Um, so my entry is actually far less high vocabulary finessed as I want it to be, and it's something that I'm I'm still consistently working on. And uh, Long Sawan, who is one of these like pit bull fighters. Uh, from the golden age. Uh, I asked Karahat and Gansok separately who was the hardest person to fight, and they didn't even let me finish saying the words. They were like, long so long. Like, he was wow. just a nightmare. Because um, he's exhausting. He told me, Long Suwan told me, because he was in my corner, he's like, you have to jab first. Like, he looks like an asshole running in like that. <laughs> like, you went in all the time. Um, so, I think that the, like, uh, the closing of distance as a as a progressive thing, instead of like biting your mouth guard and leaping across space to grab someone, um, is is the part of my clinch entry that I've struggled the most with, um, because it's getting past those weapons at the range that's not my range. Um, but teeps and jabs, honestly, are like awesome clinch entries. I think that I tend to use like a left hook on my way in, but I don't think I do that on purpose. <laughs> I think that it's just like <laughs> something that happens. But um, over, over my career, it's changed uh, quite a bit uh, in terms of, like, how I tend to be coming into the clinch and, and which knee I'm kind of, like, landing with when I get there and stuff like that. Um, but I think that in terms of uh, what you're talking about, about, about two fighters who are kind of holding their own against each other in the clinch, they're kind of, like, every time you get to one place, the person immediately counters it and kind of, like, creates an endless... Rubik's cube, kind of like yeah. keep solving this, keep solving this, keep solving this. Um, that's high level clinch, even if it's you know three seconds, four seconds at a time. Um, is that you're always countering what someone is doing, um, and I think that for me, speeding up my stack of like how quickly I can get into the the framed position where I can do the most damage um, is just putting that on the end of how to get across that distance. Right. Um... And now in terms of your strategy and approach to the clinch in general, some fighters seem to favor like a hit and run style clinching, like Wong Chinoy will come in, do a, land a couple knees and then get out, whereas others want to like stay in there and drown their opponents. And you seem mm. much more of the second type. So what is your uh, general goal and strategy once you get into the clinch and like what positions do you favor there? Um, I call it a frame. Uh, I say it's building a frame. But it's basically one hand behind the neck and one hand controlling the other arm, like kind of hopefully from, from the inside because you can control elbows better that way. Um, that's my ideal position because you can switch it and you can move and score from that position. Um, a lot of people in the West are only taught this like double plumb lock, the like yeah. double in. That's an incredibly dominant position, but if the person you're clinching knows fuck all about clinch, you're not getting there. <laughs> like, you don't see that position in, in Lumpany and Rajat Domnern ever. Yeah. Um, you'll see Dieselnoy get it a couple of times, and you're just like, I'm surprised that person's alive after this fight that he got that. Um, Samart was amazing in the Dieselnoy versus uh, Samart fight at slipping out of it. Uh, he, he was just kind of popping out of it for the first couple of rounds. Um, I think that for me, staying in uh, is really important in that, again, 
the the level of Muay Thai that I'm at and and because of the kind of matchups that I have more or less a lot of what Muay Thai is in Thailand is a battle over distance and whose distance you're fighting at I do not want to be at my opponent's striking distance I don't want to be at pad range because they're much better um, at timing they're much longer like they can hit me when I can't hit them so for me staying in is like not having to go through that like Indiana Jones, you know, arrows firing at me on my way in. I don't want to go through that twice. So I try to stay on the inside. Um, and you actually used uh, what I like to say. You said it's like drowning somebody. Um, I feel like when I get inside with my opponents, I can pull them into the deep end. And I'm comfortable in the deep, deep end. I spend a lot of time there, and they're not. So I can feel them uh, kind of not breathing as much anymore. <laughs> a couple of my knees, I start hearing the little sound that I'm like, oh, that's, that's that sound I'm looking for. So um, without without locking on like a pit bull and just like praying that I can stay in that position, um, I do try to stay at the same range and then just kind of like slip around um, into, you know, from this dominant position to a less one to a, to a better one and kind of um, move around in that sense. It's it's much easier for a ref to come save my opponent or break a clinch if, if you get really still. If you remain active, uh, they look like a jerk breaking you up. And so even if they break, they might do it. They might just break me anyway, like while I'm totally landing knees on my opponent. But it makes them look bad. So uh, I try to do that. Right. <laughs> try, try to make it look bad. Um, so uh, in terms of your style... Obviously, you're heavily heavily centered around the clinch, so lots of pressure. Um, do you feel like you get started a little bit earlier than most fighters? I feel like watching a couple of your fights, it seems like they're they're not really expecting you to do too much in the first round, and you kind of come out a little bit stronger than you usually see in Muay Thai. So is that like a deliberate thing to to push the pace and do attritional damage? Um, again, it's that kind of like cashing a check thing. So like I want to I wanna basically show what I'm going to be doing early um, so that if my opponent is countering something that I do, I can solve their solve. Like if, if they start snuffing my clinch because I started clinching in round four, I have one round to resolve what they've done. Whereas if I start clinching earlier and they solve it, I'm like, all right, I'm going to make you really fucking tired. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to solve that anymore. So... As as the kind of fighter that I am, um, I do better in the long haul. Like, I want a five-round fight. I don't want a three-round fight. If I let my opponent kind of, like, play around and rest for the first two rounds, they're much less tired on the end of it. And because I'm the smaller fighter, um, even, if I'm, even if I'm affecting them, just by them being bigger, when they hit me, the audience believes that hurt because I'm small. Mm-hmm. So even, even if it didn't, it's like their strikes count for for more than mine just based on our, our visual. Um, so the more tired I can make them, the more I can break their composure um, and, and make them look like they're trying to get away from me instead of that they are staying away from me, uh, <laughs> which is a very subtle change, but you'll see it You'll see it in fights. Uh, it looks like someone's running from you versus it looks like someone is dancing away from you. Um, that's, one, that's one of the reasons that I need to start sooner in fights, and I have... Um, again, it's trial and error. I've had many, many fights where I'm trying to do the like soft opener, um, and I I don't do well in those fights. I don't <laughs> I don't win the fights where I'm like patty caking around for the first two rounds to try to you know look like I'm I'm not what I am. It's better to like show what I am early and then just get better at it as I go. You've been uh, working on what you call a diamond guard. 
kind of looks mm. like a boxing cross-armed guard. Um, how is how has that been going? How has that progressed? The the arm position seems like it'd really be good for getting inside position in the clinch when you're walking people down. Yeah, it's cool because um, one people just don't know what it is. <laughs> it's got this kind of uh, first effect where when I do it, there's kind of a like what the hell was that from the person in front of me where they're like, they don't even know what to, to do with it yet. Um, it's maybe like how a, um, a frilled lizard, when it puts its like frills out, you're like, I didn't know it did that. And so the once you get over the shock of it, you can start dealing with it a little bit. But I haven't been able to to use it so much in fights yet because everything's been shut down now for, for mm-hmm. two months. And I've only been working on it for a little bit before um, everything shut down. So uh, I kind of have a time now to work on it uh, before unveiling it, really, like in a, in a fight or something like that. Um, what I like about it is that it allows me to uh, protect myself with flexibility. So because because I'm small and because of the way I fight uh, and because uh, people know who I am, in the way that Yodkun Pan is known as the elbow hunter and everyone looks out for his elbows, <laughs> I'm known the way Nampan was as Mr. Rottenface in that, like, the way to beat Sylvia is to cut me. So my opponents try to cut me. That's like they're like from round two, they're like trying to cut me. Um, I tend to go into max guard, which is just like, you know, a, a 11 guard trying to protect myself. And it's not flexible. I can't actually strike out of it. So the nice thing about the diamond guard is that it fully protects me from elbows, but I can actually strike out of it because it has this like kind of rolling quality to it. Um, and then elbows come out of it really nicely too. So um Sing. It's actually Sing's birthday. She's like the queen bee of uh, female fighters in Thailand. She's incredible. Um, she got cut quite a bit. Um, she and I were laughing with each other a couple of years ago about how we're like cut sisters because we both have <laughs> like scars. Um, but her mom, who's this badass woman who runs the gym, so like the head of the gym is Sing's mom, and she like raised all of these incredible fighters. Her mom told Sing if these girls are going to be cutting you, the way you stop them is by cutting them back. And it worked. Like, el- elbows from Saosing shut that shit down so fast. And the thing with the, with the diamond guard of me being able to elbow out of it is really the way to stop an opponent from elbowing you is to elbow back. Even if you don't land it, they're like, mm, maybe not. Like, <laughs> maybe we don't go into that game right now and I'll kind of back up a bit. So um, I think it has a, a lot of promise um, for my style. Yeah, you see that principle of like when you when you want something to someone to stop doing something, do it back in a lot of those fights. Like people will think that you shouldn't kick with a kicker, but if you're conceding an entire range, then that's a lot worse. And often doing the thing back to them can dissuade them and show them that you're competitive there. Um, What that reminds me of a lot is Rungarai Kiatmukau. He'll do this thing where he's an outfighter. Uh, he wants to. He's a familiar. He wants to extend the distance, so he's not using it so much to close distance. But he will. He'll have his lead hand extended in kind of a long guard, and then the rear hand will be folded over his face, sort of in a boxing oh, cross like guard. Dracula, yeah. Kind of like a Dracula guard, but he isn't like yeah. dipping his head down and keeping it tight. His mm-hmm. his forearm will be kind of across like his forehead, and I'm doing the the motions here, but obviously nobody can see that. <laughs> but um. And he, he's constantly adjusting it. So he will, usually what he does is he'll be like an extra step away. So his opponent needs to close distance in order to land. And he'll use that folded forearm to kind of block like a right hand or or he'll check a kick and then immediately counter with a knee 
or his right kick. Huh. And then, yeah, no, um, yeah. yeah. And he's, like I said, he's really um, versatile and uh, he can adjust the guard a lot. In his fight mm-hmm. with uh, Shanalert and Manathan, they had two fights recently. Shanalert was, he's he works a lot with his hands. Uh, so he's trying to step inside and punch Rungnarai. And Rungnarai would keep the elbow folded across his face on the outside and kind of adjust it up and down to block punches. And then when he got in the inside and tried to hit him with left hooks, Rungnarai would change it to like a more normal high guard. So he'd be... Mm-hmm transitioning between this cross block and the high guard while circling off and it was really beautiful to watch mm. yeah i think that the i think that the flexibility in one's guard is something that is yet another thing that has changed a great deal from the golden age to now um fighters now seem to have like one or two guards that they go between and they're effective for the most part but there's someone that they call the modern uh elbow hunter his name is mung Tai. MK, Winter, yeah, PK, yeah. Mungtai, PK um, <laughs> I wouldn't call him the modern elbow fighter, <laughs> but they do. He his elbows are really cool in that he does two things, but it's only two things, and it's because people nowadays have very uh, inflexible guards. Basically, he'll push on someone's guard from the outside like this, and so he gets them pushing out against him, and then his elbow comes in. And then once they're like, oh, shit, I made the wrong decision, he starts popping from the inside so that they start pushing in, and then he goes to the outside. Yeah. So he's just manipulating this guard from the inside and the outside and then doing exactly the opposite of what he's convinced the person is the solution. But if that person had three guards <laughs> instead of two <laughs> guards, none of those elbows would work. So it's um, it's interesting in that, in that like, uh, it's totally that, like, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king kind of thing, is that, like, given the watered-down version, someone who has something just outside of that, like, still has this kind of, like, you know, magic ability kind of thing. It's just that, you know, uh, the level of magic before versus the level of magic now is just kind of um, different. But there are still fighters who do incredible things. Like, uh, Sangmini is, like, a left kick. (laughs) Like, all he does... And it's incredible. And they, they put him against, like, Rafi, um, who, you know, once he's jabbed, has run out of ideas. <laughs> like, it's amazing. Sangmini and his endless left kicks. And you're like, yeah, it's, it's one kick, but he's doing it. Like, you know, it wasn't solved in yeah. that fight. Yeah, he, has, uh, he has some tactics to kind of, like, set it up, too. Like, he punches off them well. In the Tao and Chai fights, the first fight, Tao and Chai was kind of catching all his kicks and countering them. And then in the second fight, he kind of started, like, using them to get to his punches. So uh, Tao and Chai, he would either be long guarding to, to stop Sangmini's punches or catching the kicks. And then Sangmini would show the kick to get him to drop his hands and then start punching them. That was probably yeah. one of my favorite series of fights over the past couple of years. Yeah, Tao and Chai is, like, they call him Moi Fimur, but he's really Moi Teeth. Like, he is a teeth. That's what he does. And they're both southpaws, so southpaws have a hard time facing other southpaws for the mm-hmm. most part. Tawan Chai actually grew up in my gym. His name was Jadu Kam when he was uh, coming up at Veteran oh, wow. And so my trainer was talking about him prior to that fight. Um, and I was like, what do you think is going to happen with, uh, I called him Jadu Kam, but Tawan Chai versus Sangmini. And he was like, Tawan Chai is amazing if someone's coming towards him. He has a really hard time if he has to turn, if he has to go forward. So he's like, this fight's going to come down to whether Sangmini lets him back up the whole time or whether he's going to make him come forward. 
And as we know, in that first fight, it did not go well for Shang Mani. (laughs) He won by an incredible teeth. But uh, in in the next go around, you saw a a complete change to uh, that same situation. You know, it was like you you have something that when you're not accustomed to each other, something works, and that's why rematches in Thailand are a huge deal. People love rematches. I love rematches. I've fought some people, I think, eight, nine times because you have to adjust to each other. Like you you can't use the same thing that they weren't ready for, um, you know, in the next one. And that, that second Sangmini Taiwan Chai fight, people were like, I was talking to, uh, Diesel Noy and Karahat were in my car. We were driving up to Chiang Mai together. It was like road trip. And we were listening to this horrible disco music that (laughs) Diesel Noy loved. And, uh, they were very excited because that fight was going to happen that night. And, Diesel Noy and Karahat both agreed. They're like, there's no way Sangmini can beat Taiwan Chai. One, because he's smaller. Two, because he does not have other Yodmoy at his gym. Taiwan Chai is at PK San Chai. They, they buy amazing fighters, and so they have a stable of like all amazing fighters who can train together. Sangmini is basically like his only guy at his gym, and then he's got people holding pads for him, and like <laughs> he doesn't have amazing people to train against. And so they were like, there's no way, like, there's no way Tawan Chai is just too big. And then he got slaughtered, and Karahat just shook his head and was like, I can't believe a Yodmoy would lose to body punches. <laughs> like, <laughs> I can't believe this happened. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> what you were saying about guards earlier, um, when when the Dizanoi and Samart fight came out, I was so amazed at Dizanoi's guard. The way he was using, like like you said, transitioning between a lot of different guards, flashing the Dracula guard briefly to get into the clinch, and especially just like everything he was doing with his arms and shoulders, like he was he was almost shoulder rolling like a boxer when Samurai would punch him. It was incredible. Yeah. And all this while while walking him down and constantly just throwing knees over and over. Oh, he's Diesel and I has talked a number of times about how being tall and long is actually really difficult because your balance sucks. Yeah. <laughs> as as your body is shaped like that, it's really hard to have balance. And if you there's not a lot of footage of him, but if you watch the footage that is there of Diesel Noy, he gets punched in the face a lot. Like his guard is good, but with that height, um, people punching him in the face is something that they're just gonna try to go over it because they know those knees are coming. Uh, he was talking like it must be. 35, 36 years after the fact, and he's still pissed when he talks about Sagat uppercutting him. Like, he still gets <laughs> mad. He's like, he's like, he uppercutted me, and it was the worst, and I went after him with my knees. And it's like, you see this, like, incredible... You, I didn't even, like... I didn't see a lot of things landing on him, and then when things did land on him, it seemed to totally not bother him. And then you're looking at Samart, who's just eating knees from Dieselnoy from, like, rounds four and five. I've seen Diesel Noy's knees now at 57 years old, and I'm like, I don't, that's through a belly pad, and I don't think anybody <laughs> wants that. And Samart's just like, you know, let's go get something to eat afterwards. Like, it's insane. It's crazy. It's insane. Um, you mentioned something about gyms buying up a lot of fighters. Mm. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is kind of more of a recent thing, right? Like in the Golden Age, you had more kind of localized gyms. And how do you feel about that that trend of having like these mega gyms with a bunch of different fighters in it? Do you think it's good for the sport, or do you think it's kind of harmful in certain ways? Um, blanket statement: I don't think it's good. Uh, the reason it's not good is because um, 
you do not have the best of the best fighting each other because they're all in the same gym together. Um, Promoters already, um, it's the same thing that happens in the U.S. Like, you don't see super fights so much in the UFC because you want to keep your champion kind of unblemished thing. Um, So it's partially that there are fewer gyms in general, and so you can have these, these gyms that have a lot of power and so they can buy talent and kind of like fill their stable. Um, and then they also have sway with promoters so they can get them on, uh, the kinds of cards that are going to have title fights and things like this. That's always been the case. Like you have amazing fighters from the golden age who never got belts because they just weren't from big enough gyms. Like they, they, Somrock has no belts. Yeah. Fucking what is that? Um, but it's, it's a difficult thing now because of uh, the the difference in distribution, you don't get to see um, you don't get to see as much variety of matchups. Like you have a couple of stars who don't fight the other couple of stars, but there will be maybe a few rematches between these two gyms. And um, I think it's I think it's difficult to um, get the kind of amazing one of a kind talent that you used to be able to get in the golden age kind of because they were more homegrown. Um, but it's, it's also really hard to tell. Like a, a lot of these amazing fighters were the only ones out of their gym. Like there's the Hopalong gym that had Jamuk Pet, uh, Phnom Tunglek and Diesel Noy, like hanging out and training together. That's incredible. But Diesel Noy was not grown in that gym. Like he, he came up and started to become really famous and then went to that gym and actually never fought with their name. But he was there. And then you have um, someone like Karahat out of the Sorsupawan gym. You don't see other Yodmoy with the Sorsupawan name. Um, he had really, really great people training with him. Manop, uh, who became Sanchai's Padman, he was with uh, Karahat when they were kids at Sorsupawan. But he never became champion. Um, so you'll, you'll have little pockets of gyms that had a lot of really incredible fighters, like uh, Somrak. Uh, Cam Singh was Jockey Jim, like they were together. And so Jockey Jim produced like a bunch of really amazing fighters who actually were very similar to each other. They're all left-handed, which is really weird. Um, but you'll have little pockets like that, but not in the same way that now you'll see these like mega gyms um, that have, you know, like 10 fighters that are like just always on these top cards and like right. flying everywhere. And I don't know. It's... Um, it's difficult to separate business from Muay Thai in the same way that, you know, like, how awesome is Don King? Like, I don't <laughs> there's some messed up stuff going on with Don oh, King. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, you kind of forget about. That's happening here. You know, there's, like, lots of mafia uh, involvement in, in the promotions of the Golden Age of Muay Thai, and you can't separate that. You can't, like, look at it as like, oh, things were simpler then. Like, no, it was just you had much more powerful individual mafia and now it's like more <laughs> spread out or something. But um, yeah, it's, it's it's tricky. It's from like a, from an ethical standpoint, I'm totally like for the gym that like grows its champions, not for the gym that buys its champions. But at the same time, like some of those fighters who were grown in a small gym even though they have the qualities of being Yodmoy, will not become Yodmoy until they go to the big gym that can present them with those opportunities. And I think it's always been that way. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Something I wanted to ask more along the lines of the culture of Muay Thai 
in the West, we often divide martial arts into like traditional versus sport arts, where the traditional arts are seen as like ineffective and also culture rich, and the sport mm. ones are seen as more effective and almost kind of devoid of culture. Like there's this thing in MMA and boxing where people there's there's almost a denial of culture involved in the arts. And Muay Thai is really interesting because it's extremely steeped in culture, both its own culture and the national culture of Thailand, but it's also very geared toward competition. Um, so I know you're very close to the culture of Muay Thai and that you hold it close to you. I, I've heard you talk about like the role of Muay Thai as almost performative Thai masculinity. Uh, and there's also another side of that traditional culture that's exclusionary to women. So I was wondering kind of how you navigate identifying... <laughs> Yeah, that's not there's another side. side. (laughs) Right, exactly. So I was wondering, like, how you navigate closely identifying with certain parts of a tradition that also works to exclude you. Oh, um, it's hard. Uh, It's it's frustrating. It's also really difficult because it's not my home culture. Right. Um, So, you know, it's. It's one of these things where um, some of the most hardcore believers in a religion are people who have converted to it. So people who are raised in Judaism may not be as hardcore as someone who converted to it. I'm a convert, right? Like, I, I didn't come, I didn't grow up in Thailand, I didn't grow up with these things. So part of it is, like, I super protect and believe in and, like, stick to elements of the traditional aspect of it as a convert that people have more flexibility in who kind of came up and this is their culture and um, things like this. There are also elements that are the exact opposite of that, (laughs) which is like, um, you know, I I don't know that the concept of feminism is familiar to like 90% of the female fighters in Thailand that I would talk to. They, They say things that totally count into feminism. Like it's, they have these beliefs, but they wouldn't call it that. Like, it's not a movement. It's not something this. Um, I went and interviewed Sessing, who I was talking about earlier, who is one of the most celebrated, most recognized, most amazing female Muay Thai fighters in Thailand. Um, and she's kind of radical in a lot of ways. Like, she she came up as a young fighter, which is typical of, of female fighters in Thailand, is that they start when they're young, and they kind of peak when they're young. And then a lot of them stop right around... Um, puberty or going to school. Is that when they stop so, fighting boys? A, a lot of them don't fight boys. Like it's uh, it's not as common as it sounds. It's like when they're really little, maybe it'll happen in the provinces, but it's not a like everyone did it kind of okay. thing. The reason that Jija was so amazing is she was doing it on TV. Uh, um, but like a lot of these these young women become really good because they're fighting a lot. They become really really good. Like Loma, who people now know from the yeah. UFC grew up in Assan, fighting in the provinces, just, like, endless. She's, you know, like, really just got a lot of experience. Um, They'll run out of opponents at a certain point, which doesn't actually mean there's no one to fight them. It means that they don't want to, the other side doesn't want to put money on it. (laughs) Like, uh, the the odds just don't go, or they don't want to give up weight. Like, the reason I've been able to keep fighting and not run out of opponents is because I'll fight up. When there's money on it, People won't put money on a huge weight disparity. So, you know, that's not always an option for people. Um, but Sao Sing, normally these, these girls will run out of opponents or kind of phase out of it because they go to school, they get a job, or when they hit puberty, their bodies change so radically that they kind of can't fight the way that they did before. Sao Sing had a baby 
she had a son when she was like 18, 19 years old and then came back to Muay Thai. I think she fought again something like eight months after she gave birth. Wow. Um, and she's been fighting since then. And there's a little bit of this whole like, oh, she's not the same as she was before. And it's like, there are so many reasons why she would not be the same as she was before. <laughs> One, she took time off to, to have a kid, but two, she's older now. Like everybody changes. Um, so she's this like phenomenal, like has just kind of defied lots of odds and, and kind of had this amazing career that's um, at once somewhat typical of a female fighter and then kind of surpasses it in this other way. Um, and I was interviewing her a couple of years ago and I was asking her what she thought about um, women fighting at Lumpanir Rajadamnaran because this is something that is very protected by the West. Like, white Western men really love to talk about how traditional this is and how old this <laughs> tradition is. Not that old. Not that traditional. Um, but she was like, they will never ever, ever let women fight at Lumpany. Like, she was hardcore about it, and she had a sadness to her in the way she was saying it. So you could tell that she was like, we should be able to fight there. But she was like, they will never, ever change this rule. Like, it is just too protected in the, like, this is, like, what makes official Muay Thai, official Muay Thai, whatever. And so dealing with something like that, where you come from the West and you're like, but it's not fair. (laughs) Thailand doesn't care about fair. Yeah. (laughs) Like, this thing is that when you stop approaching it from a, like, uh, it should be a meritocracy, I work so hard, I should be appreciated in the same way. When you stop, when you stop trying to erase the um, structure that's there, and just start trying to, like, work your way into it or around it or, like, okay, that door's not going to open. I'm going to kind of go in this sideway. It's not as, as like, bumping your head against the wall as it can be if you're trying to make everything fair and right. rational. Um, I 100% believe that women will be fighting at Lumpany. I don't know about Raja Dunbar, and I think <laughs> at Lumpany we will. Um, maybe not in my career. Maybe not um, super soon. But it minds change really really fast and it's because something is suddenly commercially viable or something is suddenly very interesting or suddenly it just becomes like huh women can't fight at Lumpany like I didn't know that that was a thing (laughs) my my trainer's father who um, founded the gym in the 80s he's this old like traditional super super conservative dude like the the kind of um, Baran like medicine beliefs that he has like he has terrible high blood pressure and is like fuck you to every doctor because he wants to take his like (laughs) old school medicine he's like hardcore old school dude he asked me because I've been at the gym for a while and I was like waiting outside of the gym at 4am to go to Lumpany with um, his grandson and he was like have you fought at Lumpany yet? Like he was just completely unaware that women are not yet fighting at at Lumpany. And you'll have these white dudes in the west who are like never it's totally traditional level one i'm like this dude who's like totally into the traditions that make it so that i can't fight there doesn't know like that that is still a thing so yeah and like sh- shitty western dudes can fight a lumpany too <laughs> totally totally yeah i can't imagine how hard that is to, to kind of deal with as someone who's like not uh not naturally ties so you're coming in as an outsider and obviously mm-hmm. we can't be like just shit on the traditions and all that but at the same time there's this almost uh, fetishization by the west of that kind of culture and like you were saying with the western men being like oh no you, you can't break this it's tradition 
because because it doesn't keep them out. That's why. Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> like the second the second you're like Westerners are not allowed to fight there, they'd be like that's bullshit. Yeah. Deckers. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And there's it's like there's this this barrier to women. Well, at the same time. Like they have Lumpany has a ton of like nothing prelim cards where like, shitty Western dudes are fighting. Max Muay Thai is paying shitty Western dudes to fight, and they won't have women there. <laughs> and it's like I it's fought crazy. At Max Muay Thai. They used to have oh, women. Yeah? I fought at Max. Yeah. They, is um, that like they a actually... recent change then? I don't. My, I... It's uh, it's a couple of years old. So Max Muay Thai existed for quite a long time, and they had Bukau um, signed with them. He was like the face of Max, but they didn't have a permanent space. They would travel around. Then they built Max Stadium in Patia, and that's where it kind of really took off. They got a TV contract. They started having daily fights. Uh, when they first built the stadium, uh, maybe, I don't know, five, six months into when they had built it, I fought there. I was the first female bout with Mung Sing Jiu, who's actually Sao Sing's cousin. Uh, we fought there. Um, and then I think there's been one other female bout. It was like an uh, Argentinian woman and a Thai woman fought there. So there's only been, been two female bouts at the permanent stadium of Max Muay Thai. Um, and then they were like, no women, no kids. Um, they didn't want anyone under like 50 kilos or something. It's my suspicion and again, I, I can only speak authoritatively on what I think. This is not written anywhere. I can't say this is absolutely what happened. I think that because they're so outside of what traditional Muay Thai is, and they had a little bit of a sketchy time when they first started having um, fights on TV every day, they were really, really filling their cards. And so they were kind of like pulling <laughs> pulling at less uh, talent than they had when they were only on the weekends. Yeah. They started having some really sketchy fights there that looked like um, show fights. And uh, Ekapop, who uh, they call Hellboy, he had a really weird knockout that everyone was like, that was totally a thrown fight. You're you're marring the reputation of Max Muay Thai. He got like kicked out and had to the good back reputation and, like, of Max Muay Thai. It used to have a pretty good reputation. Like it used oh, to yeah? have a like this is real Muay Thai. And I think that that when it started going in the direction of people being like, this is not traditional, this is kind of show fighting, in order to legitimate themselves, to make themselves seem more real and more like traditional and more authority, they're like, no women. Like that's <laughs> that's the way to make yourself really <laughs> real is to be like, no women. And so they, they now no longer let women fight there, but they, they did before and, and I fought there. Well, hopefully, like you said, uh, as as attitudes kind of change that we can look forward to to Thailand becoming more open to it. Um, yeah, I've always thought it was really weird that they don't have, there's like no, no barrier to Western men fighting there, but they don't even let like the elite Thai women. Yeah, it's because um, it became something that gamblers were interested in seeing. Like it, um, <laughs> it's, the Western men who are fighting there think that it's because they've achieved what the Thai fighters who fight there have achieved. <laughs> they think that it's the same thing, and it's not. It's it's kind of a, a novelty. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some very, very good Western men who oh, fight yeah. there. This is not a like, blanket statement. Um, but, but there are some like him. <laughs> 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 this dude at my gym who totally sucks can fight at, at either of those stadia, no problem, and I can't go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so as a, a couple of wrap-up questions, who is a, a fighter that, like uh, a legend that you would like to train with that you haven't had a chance yet? 
Wong Chinoy. Oh, I was just going to ask after this that I was going to say Wong Chinoy is probably my favorite Nakamoy of all time. And if you were in contact with him and you've thought about doing a session with him. I think about it all the time. I actually harass Karahat to help me (laughs) all the time. Um, There are a lot of obstacles, like... Like like we talked about when we first started, these guys are not always in wonderful situations. Um, not all of them are in gyms. If they are in gyms, they're not of the greatest health or um, sobriety <laughs> all the time. Uh, he's he's been a little bit difficult. I think that we will get Wang Chinoy, um, but he's been a little bit difficult uh, just to to get to that point. But I'm I'm very like I want this, so I keep working towards it. Um, I also really want Olay. Um, he's really far oh, away yeah. um, and hard to get to. I have I have made initial contact, and I think that the way to get to him is actually to um, <laughs> maybe get uh, Diesel Noy to help me, <laughs> something <laughs> like that. Um, but he's he's way down in the south at a gym, um, and he seems actually to be in in really good um, health and and would make a really good session. And some core is in Hong Kong. Um, and I contacted him, and he's just not in, in Thailand very often. So I, I told him, when you come back to Thailand, let me know. I'd like to get Sampor. And um, who else was I waiting for? Shmuel's pet's brother, Panam Tonglek, is in um, Tokyo, which is also where Shmuel's pet is. I didn't so know they were I, brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Panam Tonglek's little brother. And uh, he will be coming back for his visa eventually. <laughs> I'm gonna try to grab him uh, when he comes, but those are those are like my top of the list right now. Hopefully, those pan out. I'd be super interested in seeing all of them. Since you already mentioned Wang Chinoy, all Alaska Viral. I feel like I'm gonna be so nervous, right? Like when I actually like when I see Wang Chinoy, I'm just gonna be so nervous. I probably won't even be able to like get the video done. I'll just be like, Do you get that like starstruck thing with everybody? Like it must be amazing being around so many legends of the sport. I've gotten I've gotten better at it. I think over I hope I've gotten better at it over time but like when I was first starting um there were oh there were some really hard ones when I first met Namkabuan um he was making a really really big deal about me making eye contact which I can't do as a person <laughs> like, to do it as a fighter and it's something that I've actually worked on and and have made a whole thing out of it I think it's actually truly incredible but at the time when he was like you have to look me in the eyes and you have to you have to do this while we're like doing this training. I honestly was like, "Sir, you are too handsome. <laughs> I'm not looking for you. I'm just gonna stare at the floor and get through this." And now, now we're buddies. Like now, you know, we we talk and we can hang out and we like, uh, you know, make jokes with each other and stuff like that. Now I can look him in the eye while making fun of him. But at the time that I was <laughs> filming that, it was like not, no way. But I think with Wang Chinoy, I would just be so nervous. And some of these people, like Sagat. I really like Sagat. Like he's a he's a very very cool guy. It is like being in an enclosed space with a tiger, and when he hits you, he's barely touching you. Like he's just demonstrate. He's like just demonstrating where you're supposed to be hitting, and somehow it still hurts so bad that you're like, please don't ever touch me. <laughs> it's just horrifying. It's we have a guy at our gym right now, um, Ajahn Gimyu. He's he's not a a um, champion, but he trained champions. So he was the one who trained Lockin for the three fights against Samson. Lockin is scary as shit. Like he is just like, again, like tiny dude. 
when he's coming at you, you're like, that was just entirely too close to me. Like, don't, <laughs> don't do that. Uh, Ajahn Gimyu is 78 years old. He was in a motorbike accident like 10, 15 years ago and is just, I think he weighs a little bit more than I do. Like, he's a very wow. frail looking dude, but still really, like, I think he just lives on anger and, like, stubbornness. He was punching me in the stomach while I was kneeing him to, like, condition me or, like, I don't know what he was trying to teach me about, like, or just to be sadistic. I have never been hit so hard in my life as from a 78-year-old man who was, like, digging his knuckles into my ribs. Oh, my God. Like, I had to excuse myself from the ring when I was finally, like, like had finished my rounds. I lied to him and got out of the ring and went and was like, I might cry in the bathroom. <laughs> Amazing. Have you ever tried to get out of Veerpal for a session? I have. Um, he said that he's just working in his restaurant up in uh, Chayapum, which is where he is. Um, I think that I might have a better chance of getting him now. He's actually started integrating himself a little bit into a local gym up there, um, kind of making cameos for a fighter that was getting ready for a fight that was canceled um, because of COVID. But that fight will happen when, when fights start again. So I think that um, my chances with Weirapon are increasing. And then Lamnamoon very unfortunately uh, went to Singapore for like a two, three year contract or something like that. Um, but I definitely want to get Lamnamoon. He's way up in Ubon, so he's been difficult to, to get to. Um, but when he comes back, maybe I can get a fight up there and, and get Lamnamoon as well because he's just unreal. I love, I love Lamnamoon. Lamnamoon, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so finally, do you have anything you'd like to promote? Do you have anything coming out soon? And you guys should all subscribe to Sylvie's Patreon. She has a uh, dozen, hundreds of sessions with legends of Muay Thai, and it's amazing to just see the see the way they move and the way they teach. Uh, it's easily the best resource for anyone who can't actually go down there and train themselves. So I'd highly recommend Thanks. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I would I would say um, 100% check out Patron, uh, even if you just like take a look at it, even for just $1, um, you can get access to some pretty incredible things. But um, the library is almost 100 hours of long form instruction. Um, the thing about my method and kind of what I'm doing with the library, and we call it preserve the legacy. Again, like I said at the start of the show, it's not only preserving the techniques, um, of these amazing, uh, we have legends, crews, uh, current fighters, ex-fighters teaching their technique. Um, it's preserving the technique, but it's also preserving these men who are just really, really incredible people. And it truly is a library um, in that there's just so much to go through. And one of the reasons we do long form instead of like breaking everything down into like highlight videos or breakdowns or individual technique is that um, that would be like kind of learning a language by vocabulary alone instead of actually like reading Nabokov or something like you. The, the way that someone uses their technique is so telling and expressive of who they are. Mm -hmm. So when I, when I first started doing the library, people often ask me, do you find it confusing to have one teacher teach you this way and another person teach you that way and then like you can't do them at the same time because they actually conflict with each other. Um, and it's actually not confusing at all because 
it's basically like using synonyms. Like you, you know when to call something a rock or when to call it a stone because it just sounds right, but they kind of mean the same thing. And that's one of the, the beautiful things about the library is that because someone is showing their style, they're not like, this is how you kick. This is like, this is how Karahat kicks. And this is right. how, um, you know, uh, so, this is how Silipatai kicks and actually kicks the shit out of Karahat <laughs> this way, um, is that it, it, it works into their entire personality and their entire um, kind of program as a person and as a fighter. And it just makes sense. You're like, I totally understand why Yodkunpan would say don't lean back on that knee is because he's going to knee you 500 times <laughs> whereas Parahat's like yeah lean back on the knee because he's just throwing the one that's like going to spear you into the corner and then he's you know coming for his head kick or whatever um, so Patron has uh, the library but it also has documentary projects we have the watch with me of the Dieselnoi versus Smart uh, sorry um, Dieselnoi versus Smart Holy Grail fight which is Dieselnoi talking about it while we're watching it and talking about the weigh-in um, we did the same with Namkabu and Fighting Deckers. So there's tons of stuff in there um, that, honestly, there's so much in there that it's a little bit like I, I can't even tell you everything that's there. So just go have a look and get lost in it because it's like a rabbit hole of Thailand's best Muay Thai. Absolutely. Check out Sylvie's Patreon and check out Patreon, the Fight Site's Patreon at patreon.com slash the fight site. Thank you so much for coming on, Sylvie. I had a great time. Thank you for having me and for thinking so wonderfully about Muay Thai. These are such interesting topics. All right, until next time. Bye, guys. They hands and feet and bows and knees. This is an art of boxing you would all love to learn. Suck them hard with your soul and then kick out and all. Ah.